I listened to it. As soon as I finished, I just started over again. So powerful. If I had to pick a best book of the decade, it might last. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, two weeks ago, we started a two-part series that has grown into a three-part series on Andrew's best book of the year list. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun with that so far. (laughs) Yes, we have. And I noted in one of the episodes, I think the most recent one, part two, that very few of these books are actually fiction. A lot of these are nonfiction. Right. And well, and we even talked about my my difficulty in being converted to the value of spending my valuable reading time on fiction. But yeah. I have been converted. However, there's still mostly nonfiction on the list. What's the, next? Okay. 2013, your book of the year was The War Against Grammar by David Mulroy. Oh, fantastic little book. I will warn everyone in advance. It is a small book and it is expensive, almost $30. But hey, Diamonds are expensive, too. But it's so interesting. Uh, Mulroy was a professor of classics at uh, University of Wisconsin. And over the course of his tenure, he was noticing that uh, the students in his classes were less and less able to understand just the literal meaning of what they were reading. And these these weren't stupid kids. This wasn't, you know, English zero. This was people who signed up to read classics, difficult stuff. And he was curious as to, you know, why and how this had been happening. Well, and just to clarify, you're not talking about these students weren't able to identify parts of speech and that kind of thing. They just couldn't understand what they were reading. Right. It wasn't a grammar test. Actually, Mm -hmm. the test he did, it's really funny. Mm -hmm. This is just worth the price of the book itself. But he gave them the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, Mm -hmm. which is 72 words long. We'll <laughs> yeah, give it pretty that. pretty long. <laughs> um, and then he asked them to, you know, answer two questions as bo- bonus points on a quiz. Number one, do you recognize this? And if so, where is it from? Number two, in your own words, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And he found that fewer than half of his students could identify it at all, which is kind of sad. Mm-hmm. And fewer than a third of them could even approximate the meaning. And he put in the book some samples of some of the most goofy, wild, weird interpretations and understandings. And it's it's one of those painfully humorous or humorously tragic things. And uh, so that's worth reading. But what he really wanted to do was figure out why students couldn't understand what 20 years ago students most students could understand. Mm -hmm. And he came to the conclusion it was because they couldn't parse the sentence. They didn't know what is the subject of this sentence. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, you can't really know what it's about, what's it saying. 
So he took some time and did some research into the teaching of grammar recently, as well as the teaching of grammar throughout the history of the world. And he found a very direct correspondence between the rise of civilization and the teaching of grammar and the declines of civilizations with the lack of attendance to the teaching of grammar. And then he looks at the situation in modern America Mm -hmm. and has discovered, and that's where the title of the book comes, that there has been a war against Mm. the teaching of grammar in schools in this country, pushing five decades now. Wow, yeah. Uh, Now, of course, there's always holdouts. There's old teachers who know this is the way you should do things and Mm -hmm. they don't buy into the new fangled progressive changes. But even those teachers eventually time out. And so this, this he perceives as a very significant problem. Yeah. So it's just interesting in so many levels, the humor side, the the history of the world side, little bits like when Henry VIII, who's not one of my favorite guys ever, but he did a few very important things in terms of history. Mm-hmm. One of those things, however, is he standardized the Latin grammar in England at that time mm. because people were using, you know, different grammar systems. So they couldn't necessarily read what each other wrote and understand it clearly. Mm-hmm. So he decreed everyone must use the same grammar book. And within one generation, what happened? The English literary renaissance, Shakespeare, Marlowe, oh, Johnson. interesting, yeah. Uh, that that codified language to a degree that then this kind of burst of creativity mm-hmm. was possible. Right. And it fits kind of with what we've talked about many times, how creativity can only exist on a solid foundation of basic skills right. and knowledge and information. Right. And so. this is where I insert a plug for our Fix-It Grammar program. We teach here grammar at IEW. Hopefully, that, That's your job. That's my job. And yeah. it's, it's a fun book. I'm really, it, it works very well. Really we'll, love it. We'll do more podcasts on that, I'm sure. Oh, no What's doubt. the next book? Ten Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child. Yeah, I woke up one morning and said, gee, I'd really like to destroy the imagination. <laughs> no, obviously it's satire. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, Anthony Esselin, professor of literature, uh, tremendous, tremendous, um, you know, humanities academic. You'd call him a man of mm-hmm. letters. Mm-hmm. He uh, translated uh, the whole Divine Comedy and created oh. a whole course on that. But Anthony Esselin's book here um, was one of several he's written over the past decade or so, kind of about the decline of the educational culture, the family culture that embraces and cultivates goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are the ways to destroy your, destroy the imagination of the child? One of those, of course, is give them screen-based entertainment all day. Right. Oh, dear. Um, and I don't remember all 10. You certainly mm-hmm. could, could look at that. But uh, it, was, it was a good book at the time. It got a little bit of traction in, in the general homeschooling world, mm-hmm. although his readership, I think, tends to be a little more along the classical mm, mm-hmm. uh, lines. But, uh, yeah, Esselin is uh, E-S-O-L-E-N, and anything he's written is worth reading in my view. Great. Next one on the list, Andrew, fiction, or is it? The Divine Comedy. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's definitely fiction. It's <laughs> allegory, uh, very complex, mm-hmm. and I, I 
read it because I wanted to teach it. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those, you know, it's on the short list of the greatest literary mm-hmm. achievements of mankind. Mm, wow. And the problem for me is ignorance. I don't know the history. I don't know all the mythology. I don't know all the allusions. I don't even know all the biblical references. Uh, but one good aspect of modern technology is I can access other people's commentary mm-hmm. and explanations and footnotes and all of that. So I did teach through the Inferno and the Purgatorio, and we only had time for like the first third of Paradise. So, Which is the best one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the boys, you know, they really like the violence of, mm-hmm. of the Inferno for mm-hmm. the most part. But it's just one of those things that the first time through you feel like you've just got the very tiniest little bit of the surface of something. Mm-hmm. And even that was just incredible and magnificent and delicious. I taught through again a few years later and did make it through to the oh, end of Paradiso. I was a little more disciplined about the schedule. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I could probably try to take a group of teenagers through the Divine Comedy every year for the rest of my life, and I still wouldn't understand a fraction sure. of it. But it's worth doing. Uh, but I do recommend, you know, some of the resources to bring it to life and give you the insight a little more. Yep. Uh, worldofdante.com mm. was very, very helpful for mm-hmm. me. There's also different translations that have different uh, footnotes. So right. I had a couple that I was working with. And then, as I mentioned, Anthony Esselin, being the Dante scholar that he is, created a whole series of videos where mm. he was talking about and quoting from memory and explaining uh, various things. And, um, you know, it it's just... It's an amazing literary work from the poetic side, the history, the biblical and mythological allusions mm-hmm. are so rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's definitely it's it's biting into something that's going to require a lot of chewing. Yes, it is. Well, speaking of a lot of chewing, you went from Dante to Plato, and the next year you read in 2016 The Republic. Or I shouldn't say read, because I know you've read a lot more books than are on this list, but these are your best book of the year. Well, someone once said reading about Plato is actually harder than just reading Plato. Hmm. I I think there's some truth to that, because, you know, academics get into Mm -hmm. kind of a a hyper-analytical mode. I had the benefit of reading the book as part of a group of men Hmm. that were reading together— Two of which had PhDs, oh boy. and the other two of which had advanced degrees in theology mm. and philosophy. And so I was really out of my league <laughs> in this room. Uh, but I was blessed, and mm-hmm. so a lot of the things that you know I was reading, I just don't quite get that. You know, I could bring that to the conversation mm-hmm. and it come up with. So, oh, nice. You know, I again, I recommend if you undertake to read something like The Republic you have access to someone who can explain various things because mm-hmm. then it's just so much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And if you can, find yourself a little group of, you know, PhD philosophers to do it <laughs> with. That's even more fun. Yeah, right. Okay, the next one that you mentioned now, I'm assuming this is a work of fiction. In 2017, the book that made your book of the year list was The Awakening of Miss Prim by Natalie Finalera. 
Oh, yes. Anyone who has read this book will just immediately nod their head and smile. Mm -hmm. It was written in Spanish. Mm. She's alive. She's an economist, and this was her first work of fiction. And it's really the story of a woman who comes to a kind of a village and meets this mysterious man whom everyone respects greatly, the man in the wingback chair. Mm. And he has a little school and she's now to be the teacher. But she's bringing all of these kind of, you know, teacher-ish ideas. And he's coaching her more into how to teach in the poetic mode, how to teach and contemplate, how to teach and discover joy. Mm-hmm. And so for her, this process of changing the way she interacts with children is also changing her heart and her life and thus the awakening of Miss Prim. Oh, see. And it's an easy read. I probably, after Plato, I just went around and looked for good, fun, easy books right. to read. But this has that remarkable quality of being easy and enjoyable to read, but also having you know a deeper effect on the soul. Mm, nice. Okay, 2018 brings us back to Anthony Eslan. Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. Right. Well, a lot of people were writing books Mm -hmm. right around 2018 about how things are really kind of declining Hmm. in terms of the traditional American values of faith and family and hard work and honesty and trust and all sorts of kind of things happening in the world that were just making so many of us kind of worried even Mm. more about the future. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a book like this does two things. It points out, here's all of the decline. Here's Mm. the horrible things going on. Here's the tragedy. And then the rescue, which is you may not be able to change society, but you can, in your home, you can cultivate these values Mm -hmm. and and things that you want to be able to pass on from generation to generation. And his argument, of course, is that the future, you know, if if we're going to come out of the ashes and rebuild a Christian culture, it will have to happen in the home. Nice. And so uh, everything from eating meals together, Mm -hmm. which tragically so many families are disintegrated, everybody's Mm -hmm. so busy with various things, uh, reading you know, the good and great books to children, building community activities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it was, the second half is very inspiring and could give people some great ideas on how to do that mm-hmm. more intentionally. Okay. And I think the bottom line is we won't rebuild goodness in culture accidentally. Mm. It has to be intentional. Good, yes. And I love that you said it starts with a family, yeah, because we can all affect change in our families. At least I hope so. <laughs> well, that's where we have, mm-hmm. you know, we can't control the larger culture, right. but we can, to a very strong degree, control and shape the corporate culture. Yep. yep. Whether that's a company corporate culture or a family corporate culture or a church corporate culture. Yep. We have we have authority in those spheres that mm-hmm. we don't have over everything else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 2019, Seven Myths About Education by Daisy Christodoulou. 
Yes, uh, I believe this is also one of those books that was recommended to mm. me by Amazon's algorithm of oh, nice. books that I had bought because I bought a lot of books about education, mm -hmm. and so I looked at that, and then I looked at the the contents page, and mm -hmm. I thought, absolutely, I need this book. Okay, here everyone's going to say, "What are these?" Seven what are seven myths? So here yep. you go, real fast. Myth one: facts prevent understanding. Mm. Actually, facts enhance understanding. Sure. But the idea in education is if you fill a kid's, you know, brain full of random dates and names and facts that don't have any context, then you're not contributing to a better understanding. So that's one myth. Myth two, teacher-led instruction is passive, mm. right? So everyone's don't be the sage on the stage, be the guide on the side, mm. right? And this kind of idea that somehow teachers just kind of cheerlead people and then mm. they all learn well direct instruction and and research this is a well researched book and if you look at my copy here it's just covered with you know a lot of mm -hmm. of marks and references uh, but she's she's got you know primary research sources here you know essentially to show that direct instruction is tremendously valuable oh, sure, yeah. in building basic skills mm -hmm. myth 3 the 21st century fundamentally changes everything well, so did the 20th, so did the 19th. <laughs> like every century has fundamentally changed things, mm -hmm. but doesn't change the nature of children and teaching and learning mm. and how, how that's best done. Right. Myth four, you can always just look it up. <laughs> that's really an important one because we see schools are pushing this idea in many cases. Let's get every kid a Chromebook or a tablet. They don't have to remember things mm. because they can just – ask. Mm -hmm. The problem there, of course, is the less you know, the less able you are to ask a good question. And if you continue down that path, pretty soon you know virtually nothing and you can't ask any questions. But uh, the other thing, uh, and she, it turns out she worked closely with uh, Willingham, who mm. uh, had other books that I have mentioned in the past. And he said a really interesting thing one time in a, a conference I was at. He said, your brain will always be faster than Google. <laughs> right? You will always make connections instantly between knowledge that you have and new knowledge that you're seeing. And you can't do that when you think, oh, I can just look it up. I don't need to know these things. Right, right. Myth five, we should teach transferable skills. Okay, so this is why read a, you know, it's it's the practical argument, right? We need to teach something that's going to, be transferable to this job, this mm -hmm. field, this endeavor. Mm -hmm. And that's true to some degree, but you don't want to do that to the extent that you eliminate the human skills. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, an argument for the humanities as being the ultimate transferable skills. Mm -hmm. Myth six, projects and activities are the best way to learn. Okay, well, projects and activities are great, but to, if you use those and exclude other modes of learning, then you lose out on things like cultivation of the memory and mastery and discipline and a lot of those things that are still valuable. And myth seven, teaching knowledge is indoctrination. Oh. So that's one thing, you know, we're seeing a lot of now is, you know, how can you teach history without indoctrinating students into one or another or another 
essentially worldview belief system mm-hmm. about the universe. Right, right. And so she's arguing against that, that you can teach things without it being agenda-driven. Right. So great book, highly recommended. It's not very thick either. It's, what is that, like it's, how many pages? Yeah, it's, it's like 123, okay. 127, including notes. And, um, you know, I've, I've just poured over this book. I've excerpted it in different talks and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you are, you know, if you're a person who wants to gain a better sense of both the practical and the historical sides of teaching, uh, highly recommended, highly uh, recommended by E.D. Hirsch, hmm. who wrote, of course, the book Cultural Literacy, mm. and then he came out with the books that then became the Core Knowledge Foundation, whatever his fourth grader needs to know, that whole series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, he, he, he said, this splendid disinfecting book okay. needs to be distributed gratis to every teacher, administrator, and college professor in the USA. We do have links to all of Andrew's books that he mentioned, as well as those books of the year, and plus the few that you mentioned that didn't make the right. list. Right, and we're not, we're not doing an affiliate thing to get Nope. money for recommending these nope. books that's no nope. we, we do we do them. enjoy an affiliate relationship with some of resellers but in this particular case we are not including affiliate links so yeah. that should help you buy with confidence okay now we have live not by lies by rod dreher <sighs> that was in 2020 that was in 2020 um well that's a very hard book mm-hmm. uh, i would i've read everything dreher's written Hard uh, in terms of emotionally hard, yeah, not emotionally intellectually hard. hard. It's, yeah. it's an easy read. Mm-hmm. But um, Dreyer wrote uh, many years ago a book called The Benedict Option, which was what do you do when the world is collapsing around yeah. you, much like the fall of Rome in the 400s? Um, how do you kind of follow the idea of Benedict, which mm-hmm. was leave the corruption of the city and pursue God? Mm-hmm. And then what happens is people gather around you, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of the monastic mm-hmm. uh, development all through the middle, you know, early and, and mid-medieval period. Mm-hmm. This book, Live Not by Lies, he, he took the title directly from an essay by, by Soshenitsyn. Mm-hmm. It was a letter Soshenitsyn wrote to the Russian people just before he was exiled permanently. Mm-hmm. And the first half of the book, really hard to read because he's drawing some very clear connections between uh, what we see happening in our world today and the totalitarian societies mm-hmm. of history, the Nazis, the yeah. Soviets, as well as the dystopian pictures, Brave New World, 1984. And you know, we don't see the government being Big Brother as much as we're seeing what he calls the soft yep. totalitarianism enforced by the woke corporatism. And uh, so the cancel culture happening, um, someone doesn't agree, PayPal doesn't like what you're doing, they kick you off PayPal. Facebook doesn't agree with what you want to say, they prevent you from doing that, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he also spent a great deal of time in Eastern Europe, Romania. I believe he was in East, what was East Germany at one point, mm-hmm. uh, Soviet bloc countries as well. And he interviewed people with two, two basic questions, which is um, what happened and 
then he draws the comparison between what happened to them and what's happening to us now. Mm -hmm. But the more important question is, how did you survive this? Mm -hmm. You know, how did you and your family make it through right. this period of oppression and intense hatred of faith without caving in? Mm -hmm. And that's the, the second half of the book. And it's very inspiring mm -hmm. because the stories of people who were able to, you know, keep their faith even under circumstances of torture and wow. imprisonment yeah. and then be you know, that living martyr mm -hmm. to to shine the light in the darkness for others who mm -hmm. didn't have the spiritual strength. And so a lot of stories like that, a lot right. of interviews, a lot of stories. And I think the bottom line on that book is, you know, depending on, you know, where and when you live, mm -hmm. you may have to live in a world of lies, Yeah, as did the Nazis and Soviet era people. But you don't have to let the lies live in you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I got the book on audio. I listened to it. As soon as I finished, I just started over again. Mm -hmm. I listened to it twice in a row. Mm -hmm. And then I was about halfway through the second time. I thought, oh, man, I'm going to have to buy this book and, and get it so I can mark it up. Exactly. It's, just, it's so powerful. Yep. Uh, I think probably if I had to pick a best book of the decade, it might last Right. Until the end of the decade, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Well, it's 2021 right now, so we're not all the way through the year. Yeah, I can't pick a best book. Can't pick a best book. But I do know that uh, one of the things that you've been focusing on, not just this year, but in the last more recent years, and this this kind of surprised me. I'll just say that, and our listeners are going, what, Julie? Just say it, is your health. And I've always considered you to be a very healthy person anyway. So the fact that you, in more recent years, have been focusing more on health, there's a couple books that you mentioned. Yeah, I mentioned these in conference mm -hmm. talks and whatnot. I yeah. think it started with the book Why We Sleep mm -hmm. by Matthew Walker. and My brother. No, it's not my brother. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a British uh, researcher. He's uh, at the University of California campus. I think Davis, I'm not sure, mm -hmm. runs probably the world's foremost sleep research mm. laboratory mm -hmm. there. And uh, you can see him on YouTube too. You don't have to buy his book, but uh, it's it was it was really a transformative book because I had been so long in this mode of work really hard, serve your wife, serve your children, build a business, you know, and I. I had this idea that if I don't if that if I sleep more than 5 or 6 hours then I'm being lazy. Mm -hmm. And this book completely transformed my awareness and I thought oh if I could have read this 20 years before it would probably have made me even healthier, stronger, happier, a better dad, a better husband, a nicer person to work with. Mm -hmm. I'd probably live longer, have less of a chance of getting a serious disease like cancer, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Sleep is just so, so mm -hmm. vital. And I just, I needed the, the facts hammered into my brain to change my behavior by someone else. By someone, yeah, I was going to say other than me because... You know, here, listener, just you're getting a little peek into the Julie Andrew dynamics. I am have always been a huge fan of sleep. If I'm tired, I go to bed. And if I am too tired, I don't wake up until I'm not too tired anymore. Most of the time, unless yeah. we've got something really important to do. And then I make up that sleep later. Yeah. In fact, I was advocating sleep so much that I 
got a couch for Andrew's office that I think you took a nap on one time. But then you got on board of this whole idea, the value of sleep, and you gave it away to your son. I did I, give away the Which couch. I do hope that he occasionally takes naps on it as well because sleep is so important. But I attribute but... my health and stamina mm-hmm. to I just think sleep is really important. Yeah. Well, that kind of expanded into a more detailed study of nutrition. I've always been very nutritionally aware uh, but then I picked up the book Eat to Beat Disease, not because I had a disease, but I was convinced that this was going to be a good book. And it's really well organized in that he goes through the different body systems. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's the circulatory system and the nervous system and the endocrine system. And and he goes through five different systems and then talks about specific nutrients in specific foods mm. that benefit specific aspects of that system. And so... Uh, I read that uh, right before COVID started up and all my events were canceled. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of got me into cooking was uh, I was really sold on the idea of purple potatoes because purple foods have like certain micronutrients that no other foods have. And and Andrew did qualify purple food, not purple skin a la eggplant. Right, right, Because eggplant is actually not purple. I don't think it counts. But purple (laughs) potatoes. So anyway, he had a recipe in the book for purple potato soup. I thought, I'll just try that. I don't even know where you buy purple potatoes, but I did find some and I made it and was like, oh, that's pretty good. And so I uh, looked at some of his other recipes and that got me going. But, you know, that was probably the shift where I was counting on my wife to feed me well and keep me healthy. Yeah to me taking more personal responsibility mm-hmm. and also, you know, kind of a vitamin regimen yep. that I developed. And then most recently, I've been fascinated with fasting mm-hmm. as a way to longevity and health mm-hmm. because I didn't really understood it. It's like, okay, spiritual fasting, I can get that, but I don't like it. You know, yeah, I'll lose weight, but you don't have to starve yourself to do it. But now I'm understanding about how the intermittent fasting and the longer periods, it cleans out your cells mm-hmm. in a way that nothing else can do. Mm-hmm. And you you really can supercharge your health, your energy, your longevity, protect yourself against bad things like cancer and Alzheimer's that start to threaten, you know, even people in, in my age. So uh, that's just been very interesting now. Yeah, so, really, really uh, good. I don't know what the best book of the year for 2021 will be yet. But we should have a podcast in early 2022 and maybe do an annual event of, okay, Andrew, what's what's the book? What was the book last year? It puts a lot of pressure. It does put a lot of pressure, but you know what? It's fun. You're so healthy, you can handle the pressure. Right, boss? I guess. Okay. Well, we did it. We wrapped it up right. in three episodes. I hope everyone enjoyed that. I think I think they did. And don't buy every book on the list because you'll never read them all. No, you know, this took Andrew over 20 years to read through all these books. 20 books. I read 20 books in 20 years. <laughs> that's the secret nobody knows. No, no, that's not true. Of course, that's not true. But all right. Well, thank you, Andrew. This has been great. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. 
Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.